Welcome to the Foundry Church Podcast, helping you to forge a lifelong reliance on God. To find out more about the Foundry Church or how to get involved, visit us at thefoundrychurch.com. Now let me tell you what a Sunday morning looked like growing up as the son of a preacher. Every Sunday morning, my dad would rise from his bed. He would kiss my mom on the cheek, and then he would glide down the steps to wake up me, my brother, and my sister with a a song of hallelujah. And then we would rise with joy, and we would sing together, this is the day that the Lord has made. And mom would cook us a huge breakfast, biscuits and gravy, eggs, fresh cut fruit, freshly squeezed orange juice as we prepared ourselves for church service later in the morning. So after that amazing breakfast, we would all skip together to the car and on the 10 minute drive to the building, we would sing a hymn together. And once we arrived, we would say a prayer of thanksgiving before getting out of the car and before we walked into the building holding hands as one united family. Yeah, uh, my mom is is in here and she's laughing at me right now because I don't even have to say it, right? That's not the way it was. That's not even close to the way it was, right? Not even remotely close to what a Sunday morning looked like when I was growing up. And now let me give you just one actual example. One Sunday morning, we were running behind as usual, right? Still am. And I was last in line to take a shower. Mom was rushing me because we were going to be late as usual. So I jumped to the shower, slid the glass door shut, and then I turned the water on. And before I could even blink, the shower head came flying off and now the water was shooting directly at me. I estimated the speed of the water to be almost 300 miles per hour. And of course, it was also approximately 300 degrees as well because I didn't have a chance to adjust the handle. So in shock, I leaned back and then I I promptly slipped because we did not have any of those anti-slip rubber duckies that you should have on your shower floor. So I was lying on the floor of the shower with a jet stream of scalding hot water hitting me in the center of my chest. And because of the door was a sliding glass door type of thing and I was on the floor, I could not even reach the handle to get out. I screamed, help, help, help. And I guess my entire family was already in the car or something because not one of them came to my rescue. So I I mustered all of my strength. I turned the water off and decided that was enough of a shower for one day and I got out of there. I still have scars, mostly emotional, but scars nonetheless. I got ready for church, even though I was in unimaginable pain and staggered out to the car. That Sunday morning, I painfully limped into church with a 98 degree circle burn. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's my generation. 98 degrees, right? Right in the middle of my chest and with a scowl on my face. Listen, Foundry Church, I was not ready to worship. And maybe some of you can relate to this because I'm thinking maybe some of you just got in the biggest fight that you ever had with your wife this morning, but you were able to put on a smiling face just in time to shake hands with someone on our hospitality team. 
Maybe some of you were ready to just strap your kids to the roof of your car this morning because you were over their attitude. You were over all of their nonsense and yet somehow you made it here. Maybe some of you are just here because your uh, friend or your spouse dragged you here or even your mom made you come. I think all of us can think of a Sunday morning where we were not exactly ready to hear the word of God or sing his praises or as it says in scripture, even look in the general direction of heaven because we all know that heaven is not in the back of our eyelids. Now, maybe that is this Sunday. I get it. It's, it's easy to be distracted by all that life throws at us. Family issues, work issues, financial issues, and worries, and health issues. We could go on and on. Listen, though, for, for real, though, Founder Church, I have to check myself on Sunday morning, and Christina helps me with that. Or the only thing that I can think about on the way here is where we're going to go for lunch and how long of a nap I can take when we get home from lunch. Or look at it like this. right? If we are honest, I think sometimes it feels like life can throw us the most on Sunday morning about 45 minutes before church begins. Or Saturday night as we're preparing to, to ourselves for the next day of worship. And we arrive here at the church, at this group, a group of people called to the mission of God. All right, that's what a church is. And we're, we're, we arrive with all these stresses and worries and thoughts, and we are far from ready to worship Him. So Foundry Church, as we continue our look at the book of Revelation, we can see that churches that are listed in Revelation have every reason in the world to not be ready for worship, right? To be clear, they were not just struggling with some distractions. They were struggling with life and death issues. They were not just worried about getting their kids to church on time. They were worried about getting their kids home from church alive. I'll remind you about the little guy named Domitian, Emperor Domitian. We talked about that dummy last week. Domitian had made it the law to worship him and the Roman gods alone. So gathering for worship for the church in Rome was not just inconvenient, it was downright dangerous. These groups of people, these churches, were digging literal tunnels in the catacombs to hold their gatherings. Do you not think they may have had a few things on their mind besides worshiping God? Listen. Right, really, though, it's not just feeling this way, right? It's just not those churches in the beginning of Revelation feeling this way. It's not just us feeling this way. The writer of Revelation, this book that we've been studying here at the Foundry, John himself, had every reason in the world to not want to worship God. And I'm not talking just about loving God or forging his life on God. I'm simply talking about not in the mood. Don't feel like worshiping. John had every reason to not want to worship He was tortured multiple times for his preaching and was once even dipped in boiling oil. And after surviving that ordeal, he was put into exile on the island of Patmos. Patmos was no easy place to be. The island of Patmos is a volcanic, treeless, rocky island that is six miles wide and 30 miles long and around 30 miles from shore. Uh, prisoners were sentenced to hard labor at this place and isolation from everyone they loved. So, so here's the question. 
the, the tension that we need to deal with this morning and peel like an onion as a church. Like, take a look, right? What do we do when we don't feel like worshiping God? What do we do when we don't feel like worshiping God? What do we do when our heart just isn't in it? What do we do when worshiping God is the last thing on our mind? What do we do when it feels like everything else is just getting in the way? Right, let's look at it like this. Yosemite Valley in California is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Right, go ahead and raise your hands if you've been there or if you're watching online, put a comment up with a picture or something if you have it. Right, Yosemite Valley in California, it's one of the most beautiful places on this earth. And to get there, though, you have to go through a tunnel which opens to an awesome view of the entire valley. Now you see El Capitan, Half Dome, Cathedral Rock. Right at the tunnel opening, there is a parking area where everyone immediately pulls over, gets out of their cars, they're looking at the view, and they're saying, ooh, and ah. Now, imagine you drive through that tunnel, but when you emerge, all you see is fog. No awesome view, just thick, gray, soupy fog. That is where some of us are right now, looking at thick, gray, soupy fog. The beauty of God is right in front of us, but blocking that view is the fog of unbelief, the fog of worries, the fog of doubts, the fog of just junk and life and the mundane, the fog of you name it. So again, we must ask, what do we do when we don't feel like worshiping God, when that fog is there? Now turn with me to the book of Revelation, and today... We'll be in chapters 4 and 5, and I think we might find an answer to this question. Last week, we looked at the first three chapters of Revelation, and we saw that while the churches found in those first three chapters were in some serious trouble, God heard their cries and showed them the true Jesus. Right? God said, hey, I, I see you and your struggles and your fears and your pain. Now, see my son, Jesus who takes away the sin of the world and has given you a victory. And so the, the churches were like, great, we love it, awesome, amazing. We have the victory. But uh, um, God, here's the, the thing, God. There's still bad stuff happening to us. Can you uh, do something about that? <laughs> and to be honest, these are serious questions, right? Things that um, we still think about today. And, and God is is going to get to that, but first, before he, he gets to it, he instructs them to worship, to, to worship before anything else. They, they have seen the true Christ, right, the lion and the lamb. They have been told that victory is on the way. They're still struggling with things, though, and they want to know the who, what, when, where, and how of that victory because things are hard right now, right? Life is pretty awful, and God says, hey, wait, just before all of that, worship me. So again, what do we do when we don't feel like worshiping God? Or now, because of this, because of what God is saying more specifically, <clears throat> why does Revelation seem to say that, the, uh, that in the worst times in our lives, that's the best time to worship? Right? And again, I think these chapters will give us the answer to this question. So let's cannonball in like a fat kid at summer camp. Revelation 4 is where we're going to start. It says this, Then as I 
I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit, and I saw the throne in heaven and something, someone sitting on it. That one sitting on it, on the throne, was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. In front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit, right? the perfect spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. Just keep your finger right there. We'll be right back there in a second. Right? When, when John walks in through the open door, he immediately enters the throne room. Right? And he, he sucks in his breath. He shields his eyes from the light. And he drops to his knees in fear and wonder. Incense fills his nostrils. An angelic war host is so vast that it has to be countered by the tens of thousands. It's there and that, that, that host it shakes the very foundation of the sky with their praise. And as John has, he traces their attention. He sees that every being in heaven has their eyes focused on one thing. Take a look, right? They have their eyes focused on the throne. Right, they they cannot take their eyes off of it. And sitting on the throne is a majestic God, a God so holy that words cannot even describe Him. And if we keep reading in chapter four, we would see that this throne and the one sitting on it come up time and time again, fourteen times, in fact. Really, if we look at the whole of Revelation, we will see that the word throne is actually used forty-six times. So that begs the question, what's the big deal with the throne? Well, here's the truth. Right? We could spend the next couple of minutes breaking down the imagery of this scene and everything that is mentioned and what it represents. I could say that the clarity of the stones mentioned should remind us of the pureness and the holiness of God. And I could say that the rainbow encircling the throne should remind us of the rainbow in Genesis and God's faithfulness fully realized. I could say that the thunder and lightning show us the greatest of God's power, but I won't do that or say all of that. Instead, I'll say this. The vision that John is having, the vision of God on the throne, is wholly other. It is entirely unexplainable and completely breathtaking, but that's not the point. The point of the throne, take a look, in Revelation, is that everything points to it. Every descriptor, every image, every being is focused on the throne of God. And that is the point, Foundry Church. Thomas Long, in his book, Preaching in the Literary Forms of the Bible, said that the image of God on the throne is meant to swivel the universe on its hinges. 
swivel the universe on its hinges. Listen, Foundry, John was writing this book to people who thought that the Emperor Domitian was on the throne and that he had the power to do unspeakable things, the ultimate power. But here John reminds us that there is a bigger throne, a throne for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You see, John was reminding the churches in Rome and us that even in the worst times in our lives, take a look, worship tells us where to look. Worship tells us where to look. It points us in the direction of the all-powerful, all-sovereign, completely undeniable God of the universe, the King of Kings, our Lord. The image of God's throne in Revelation reminds us that God is in control and we can look to him. You see, no vision of heaven and earth has ever caught a glimpse of God plowing a field or cutting his grass or shining his shoes or filling out finance reports or loading a truck. God is never at wit's end with his heavenly realm. Look, he sits and he sits on a throne. He's worshipped, he's adorned, he's looked upon, and all in this world and in heaven is at peace and he has complete and ultimate control. Let me zoom out here to make an illust- to illustrate this and let us to kind of think of it like this. Uh, I am becoming a bit of a Civil War history buff since living here in Fairfax County, and because of that, I recently read this story. In April of 1865, the day after President Lincoln's assassination, a crowd gathered on the streets in New York City. People were upset and angry. Cries for vengeance were ringing out. And as the group of people grew in size and anger, they were quickly beginning to look more like a mob. And then one man stepped forward. In a loud, seasoned voice, he shouted, Fellow citizens, clouds and darkness are around him. His pavilion is dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Justice and judgment are the establishment of his throne. Mercy and truth shall go before his face, fellow citizens. God reigns. And so the government at Washington still lives. All right, with the With the words, the crowd was calmed and began to disperse. The man who shouted the words was Major General. He was a Major General for the Union Army by the name of James A. Garfield. He was also one of the, he was also a Christian church preacher from the Restoration Movement. And he eventually went on to become the only clergy to ever serve as President of the United States. Right, but, but here's what Garfield knew that people needed to know and hear that day. God is still on his throne. So look to him. Now he learned that from John because John knew this too and was writing about it. When life is filled with questions, when life is filled with worries, when life is filled with distractions, we need to, a focus, an anchoring point, something to focus on. So John says, look to the God who is still on his throne and worship him because when we look to him on his throne, everything else in life will take its appropriate place. Everything else will assume its proper size. Everything else will pale in comparison to our great God on the throne. Our entire outlook of this world and this life will change. So let's let's keep looking at this and see how and where this is going. All right, the, the verse six again. It says in front of the throne was 
a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. Then it says in the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out day after day and night after night. They kept saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty, the one who was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Now at first glance, we can very easily say, what in the actual heck is this? Right, creatures covered with eyes. Things are starting to get weird. They had six wings, also covered in eyes. They're all singing. And then there were 24 elders, and they're singing too. Right? This, this, what's going on? This is, this is getting weird. So let me, let me explain, because this would have made sense to the original readers in Revelation. Right? Each animal listed, the lion, the ox, the human, the eagle, each animal listed represents the pinnacle, the best, the apex of a facet of God's creation, right? The, the apex of all creation being man. And then the greatest of birds is the eagle and the greatest of domestic animals is the ox and the greatest of wild beasts is the lion, right? All of this is represented, all of this represents the best and yet they're bowing to God. They are at their most alive in worship. Constantly alert as they are covered in eyes and immensely powerful with their wings. The original reader, the, to the original reader, this image is clear. These creatures bring to life what it says in Psalms 96 verse 13. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. And then we see the 24 elders. They, they're most likely to represent the original 12 tribes of Israel. At the Old Testament people of God and the 12 disciples of the New Testament people of God. And, and for us, it can be easy to lump everyone in the Bible together. But to be clear, that is, there's a huge difference between a desert nomad like Abraham from the Old Testament and a Roman citizen like Paul in the New Testament. Yet here they are all together. And while these elders all have thrones, they drop to their knees and worship before God. Right, so, so the picture is this, the whole of creation and the whole of God's people worshiping him together because here's the truth. Even in the worst times, look what worship does. Worship brings everyone to the table. All of creation and all of the believers, all the New Testament. And if, if we read on in chapter 5, we will see that even all of the angels, so many angels, in fact, that they cannot be counted, are all singing together. Literally every heavenly angel and then every dove, iguana, elephant, every lily, sunflower, and dandelion, every dolphin, shark, fish of the sea, every star, every cloud, every roll of thunder, every man. From every tribe and every nation comes and steps up to the table of worship, united in the worship of God. The God they are forging their life on. 
Founder, there's hope here. And it is so easy for us to be divided over, over things, over big things, over little things, over Bible translations and political opinions and so much more. But worship takes all of that away. It brings us all together with one focus, worship of the God of the universe. Now, there's this popular Christian song out right now called So Will I. And in part, it says this. I'm going to sing it for you. I'm just kidding. It says this. It says, if the stars were made to worship, so will I. If the mountains bow in reverence, so will I. If the oceans roar your greatness, so will I. For if everything exists to lift you high, so will I. In worship, we all come and step up to the table and say, no matter what is going on in this world, no matter my current experience, no matter my worries and fears and pain, if you will worship, so will I. Because here's the truth, a truth that we need to hold on to and grab a hold tight boundary and live with. Worship is not about circumstances, our circumstances. It's about our Savior. Worship is not about our circumstances. It's about our Savior. Right? Take a picture of that. Remember that. Put that on your bathroom mirror. Make it the home screen of your phone because sure, this morning you got into a crazy fight with your spouse, but you know what? Jesus is still our Savior and he deserves our worship no matter how we feel. Sure, the people from that political party have ridiculous ideas about the future of this country, but Jesus died to save them too. So we will worship together. You may be afraid of what tomorrow has to, to bring because of a financial worry or health concerns or, well, like we said, fill in the blank. But whatever it is, Jesus still saved you. And no matter what comes tomorrow, the, that fact will never change. When we worship, even when we don't feel like it, even when our circumstances are difficult, when we feel like the whole world is against us, worship reminds us that the whole world is actually with us, raising its voice in praise to God. And when we join with all of creation and sing a great song that has been sung from the dawn of time, and we will sing out through all of eternity, we sing with the heavenly host, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now let me let me jump ahead here to chapter 5. At the beginning of, of the chapter, John notices that God on the throne is holding a scroll. But no one is found worthy or is able to open the scroll. And John, and he's heartbroken. This scroll, it seems to represent God's plan for all of history and all of the future. And no one can open it. And if no one can open it, who can... Who's going to be able to carry out God's plan, right? There's, there's no blueprint. There's no game plan, right? Will his plans go on fulfilled? What will happen? And so because of this, John, he starts to weep bitterly, it says. And then it says this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. It says, but one of the 24 elders said to me, ah, stop your weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah the heir of David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. <laughs> Quit crying, right? John is, is relieved. 
Right? Phew, the lion of the Judea is, is coming. Watch out, world. Here comes the roaring lion. Whatever you think you have, world, the lion can beat it. Everything is going to be okay. And now look what happens. Verses 6 through 7 says, Then I saw the lamb. I saw a lamb who looked as if it had been slaughtered. But now it was standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit, the perfect spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. Verse 7 says, he stepped forward. He took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Jump down to verse 11 and it says this. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands of millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And when I heard uh, every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and in the sea, they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belonging to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and they worshiped the lamb. Wait a second. Why is there a lamb? Right, John turns uh, expecting to see the king of all beasts. I mean, that's what the elder told him. And instead, he sees the most vulnerable creature of all time, the sacrificial lamb, a lamb that had been raised to be killed. And this lamb was killed. So here's the thing. The, that sacrificial lamb was slain. Like we said, it was killed. Uh, but here he is now standing in the center of the throne room and all focus is pointed on him. Why? Because yes, the lion of Judah had devoured the foe, but the way he achieved the victory was by letting the foe slay him like a lamb. The lamb, Jesus, exhibited his strength through weakness. He conquers through sacrifice. The lion of Judah conquered because he was willing to act the part of a lamb. He let ego go. By dying on the cross, Jesus had earned the right to open the remainder of redemptive history and lead his people victoriously through it. He opens the scroll that no one else could. That early church took note of this. Triumph came through sacrifice, which means that their own sacrifices, their own pain, their own worship in the darkness meant victory was on the way for them too. Jesus had been where they were in pain, in hostility, in fear of death, and he conquered all that junk. And Jesus has been where we are, in pain, in fear, with questions and concerns, asking God to take this cup, and he still claimed the victory. Look, worship encourages us. Only Jesus could heal the hurt of his people, turning their sorrow into song and their death into life and point them toward the hope of tomorrow. Worship reminds the people of God that they should forge ahead because the Lamb of God had opened the scroll of history and his sacrifice has redeemed our past and our future. Samuel Zumer, a missionary who is sometimes called the Apostle to Arabia or the Apostle to Islam, wrote in his book, Topsy-Turvy Land, and I, I think it sums up this point so well. He said this, When you read in reports of troubles and opposition, of burning up books and imprisoning uh, Kopulter and expelling workers, you must not think that the gospel is being defeated. It's not. It's conquering. Right, What we see under such circumstances is only the dust in the wake of the plowman. And then he says, 
God is turning the world upside down that it may be right side up when Jesus comes. He that ploweth should plow in hope. We not be able to see the harvest yet in this country, but furrow after furrow, the soil is getting ready for the seed. Right In worship, we are reminded that God has turned the world upside down. The Lion of Judah fought as a lamb and gave us hope that whatever we are going through, victory has been claimed. We have hope. Take courage. Forge ahead. The Lamb has won. As the band comes up, let me tell you a story. Joni Erickson Tata became a quadriplegic after a diving accident at the age of 17. Now, many of you may know her story. She tells a story about Jackie, her best friend in high school, and her co-captain of the field hockey team. After a tough loss on the field their senior year, Joni remembers she and Jackie sitting in the back of the team bus, drying their tears and singing together these words, the song, Man of Sorrows. What a name for the song of God who came. They were glad that they had a savior who understood their heavy hearts. But three months later, shortly after high school graduation, uh, it got a little bit more real. Joni uh, dove into shallow water and broke her neck. And as she faced lifelong paralysis, suddenly God didn't seem so good anymore. She wondered if he truly cared, and one night as she lay in the hospital bed, she felt all alone, and she cried out in prayer, Lord, I can't do this. But that was the night her friend Jackie sneaked in to see Joni after hours. Jackie had hid behind the couch in the visitor's lounge until the hallway lights were out, and as Joni lay awake, wide awake, wrestling with her fears, she suddenly saw Jackie crawling across the hospital floor into her room. First of all, get a friend who will crawl across a nasty hospital floor for you. And when Joni saw this, she hissed, Jackie, if they catch you, they're going to kick you out of here. And Jackie said, shh, be quiet, as she climbed up into the hospital bed with Joni. She took Joni's hand, and knowing that Joni could feel nothing, Jackie raised it up so her friend could see that they were holding hands. Then Jackie began to softly sing, Man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. In that sacred moment, Joni said this about it later. That song met my need like nothing else, and it underscored how good, how very good God is. In worship, Joni's heart suddenly knew that God, who sent his son as a sacrificial lamb, understood her pain. He cared. He united. He was victorious. When we face the problem of pain, the deep mystery of suffering in our life, when we feel like running in the opposite direction, what we need more than anything else is to worship. We need to be focused on God's sovereignty on the throne. We need to step up to the table with all believers. We need to be encouraged by the victory of Jesus, we need to worship. When we feel like worshiping the least, that is when we need to worship the most. So as a church, let's stand and worship together. We're going to sing the words that the angels and the elders and all of creation sing. So sing focused on God and his victory united together. Let's stand. <laughs>